to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Would you please open your Bibles to James chapter 2? You can find uh, James... Uh, chapter 2 on page 1011 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, uh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are uh, convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy." Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord and ask for His blessing upon us. Lord, we need Your grace. We need your grace to speak. We need your grace to hear. We need your grace that your word would be taken to heart. Lord, that we would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in deeper ways, in richer ways. That we would see your glory more, Lord Jesus. That we would give ourselves up to you more willingly. That we would understand your love more deeply and, Lord, live out that love one another and to others. We thank you that this is your goal, your purpose in our lives, that you have planned before the world began to conform us evermore to the image of Christ until that last day when we will be made like him in full. And so, Lord, as you commanded us to love as 
you have loved us. May we, by your Spirit then, be conformed. As Paul says, from glory to glory, from one glory to another, as we behold even the glory of Jesus. Bless us, O Lord. We rest in you, our only help, you who made heaven and earth. Amen. Now, uh, many of us have heard from one of our number that we, who is a beloved member, uh, you're my favorite. Uh, and she says this to almost anybody. And, and what's so wonderful about that is you really are. <laughs> you really are her favorite. And it's one of the happy uh, experiences that we have to hear her address each one of us in this way. And that's really, if it could be for each of us to say that to everyone here, that'd be pretty cool, you know. If you could honestly say to each one here in a, in a sincere way, no matter who it is, no matter how low, how high, what kind of personality you have, what kind of background you have, to be able to say from the heart, you are my favorite. You are my favorite. Not in a way that's, you know, saying, well, he just lied to you because he told me he, I was his favorite. But in the way of exalting every person. To say, I love you with all my love. And I love you with all my love. And I love you with all my love. But we don't do that very well. We human beings are notorious, notorious for separating out for dotting the landscape, you know, placing around us those that most are to our advantage, that we most like to be with, and carefully guarding ourselves and separating ourselves out from those that aren't so great to be with. And we're going to speak to this and speak to some aspects of it, but this is what he's addressing in this passage This favoritism that we tend to show to certain people over other people. And he begins, of course, by saying that this is not consistent with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to look at this command not to show partiality that he he begins with. And I want to show two basic things that it's a violation of God's person in what he does, and it's a violation in God's person in what he commands. Really, to summarize it, it's a violation of everything that God is and how he acts and how he commands us. Who he is and what he says to do, this is a violation of God in every way. And of course, in if we live this way without repentance, without helpless seeking of his mercy, in it uh, to be transformed, and we just commit ourselves to this kind of lifestyle, we will meet judgment in the final day. And so it's a serious matter, but a matter, as we'll see, to lead us into greater liberty, because he speaks about, again, the law of liberty, the law of freedom here, the freedom to love even as God loves us. So, uh, He puts up front in this phrase in verse 1, in the original language, he says, in favoritism, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's he he, uh, grammatically, you might say, shoves the glaring problem into our face. (laughs) Not 
in favoritism do this, or in favoritism do not hold this faith. And favoritism literally is face-taking, right? You, it's an outward view of someone. They walk in, you see their clothes, you see the way they bury themselves, or you can catch a little flavor of their personality or their background, and you there's favor, immediate favor. They walk in and they don't dress quite so well or it's a little, maybe not shabby, but a little goofy, you know, uh, not quite right. And you tend to shy away, not to walk so fast and quickly uh, toward them. In this particular case that he talks about, they're given an actual position in the assembly. Uh, literally, it's a gold ringed man. If a man, a gold ringed man comes in with fine clothing, the clothing here spoken of is shining clothing, like it's even used to describe angels' clothes. So he comes in and he is decked out, you know. Bright colors tended to be more expensive, so he's got the rings, he's got the clothes, he's got the Rolex, he's got the Armani suit, and he's put in a good place. Here, we, we got just the spot for you. Come on down here, you know. Sit, it, sit him here. And then, of course, the poor man comes in. And some might even think that it's a noble gesture to somebody who's not dressed so well and even smells bad. You know, like, hey, I got a good spot for you and <laughs> you get to sit at my feet since you smell bad. You know, <laughs> that's like a noble thing. At least you get to sit at my feet. I mean, I could just not even let you in here, you know, that kind of thing. But he, he is put in a place maybe standing off to the side or he is uh, put at a footstool. Now, this is hard to think about, but we actually, in the history of the church, had certain pews that were paid for and people sat in the higher places because they paid for them. And the poor people that couldn't afford the pew sat on the edges. That, really, that was enshrined. That was, that was policy. In churches in the past. So this is not just ancient. Um, and of course, they're treated showing the unimportance of their person, showing uh, that they, you really don't want them there, that uh, they should know their place. And he likens this as he talks about it. He says, you've become, uh, you've made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts or corrupt motives. He says, you're acting like judges who've been bribed by rich clients to give a verdict on their favor. You're just acting, you're acting just like them. Because you hope for or want to curry the favor of this rich person. And so you're treating them in a whole different way than you would a poor person. You're acting just like a judge would. Judging on the basis of what they have or what they don't have. And so you're giving an unf- you're like a, a, a judge giving an unfair verdict. Who slipped a little money and says, I know he's guilty, but I'm going in his favor. I'm going to I'm going to rule in his favor. He says you're no different than that with those kind of those same kind of corrupt motives. And he says of course this is in opposition to God himself who's chosen the poor of the world and 
We will look at that in a minute when we, we look at the, the very character of God in this regard. But we have to consider how we approach this in our own lives. He, he says, you're, you're giving dishonor to the poor people that God has chosen, and he's even given them the kingdom itself. These are heirs to the kingdom that you're treating this way. You may think of them as nothing. You may outwardly look at them and say, he has nothing really to offer me, to advance me, to make me feel better about myself. And uh, you're not recognizing who this is. This is a future king or queen. And God has chosen him or her. And God has given them his kingdom. And you are disdaining a king or queen that God has chosen? the feel of this. And then to speak of the rich. Now, he doesn't mean every single poor person is a believer and every single rich person is an abuser, an oppressor. But as a class at that point and throughout history and throughout the world, in many places, this is the case. So he's speaking of a general tendency the general class of what what the poor were like. So he says, just as a class, this is how they tend to treat you, and now you're treating them with this kind of favor. The very ones who oppress you and drag you into court, they, as a class, tend to stand against Christ, uh, and yet you're going to show favor to the rich man, showing that faith in Christ means nothing to you, and wealth trumps everything. Their faith in Christ and love for God mean nothing at all to you. They're scum nonetheless. The rich hate the Lord Jesus, hate his people, and they're royalty because their money means everything to you. Social standing means everything to you. That's basically the assessment here in their social situation, you see, that they would immediately. And and likely many of these people that are favoring the rich are poor themselves, which is even sadder. You know, to be the poor and and to want to be around the rich. And so we have to be careful, don't we, all of us, of populating our friendships so carefully, surrounding ourselves carefully, padding our life carefully, so just the right people are around us. And sometimes it's not just poor in wealth, but poor in personality. Not as easy to be around, so we're not going to spend any time. Poor in social skills or poor in upward mobility, poor in their uh, capacity to advance in their job, poor in their body. And we tend to favor the poor that have real potential. She's poor, but she's so bright. Ooh, we favor that, right? He's poor, not so bright. We're not going to give our time there because we're always looking for non-poor people. The poor are, are those who can't do something for me, who can't bring anything to us, it seems like, either in our society or personally uh, to us. Now, in as much as love is an issue, and let me speak carefully about this, when people come into our fellowship, we want to say, we accept you, we welcome you as you are. 
But we will not be satisfied with you remaining as you are in terms of your love for other people. Okay? So that we would be a community that works on people in a kind way, in a gracious way, in a tender and meek and honorable way, but that we grow together. We promise in our mission statement that we will nurture you to love God and love others, okay? With the good gospel of Jesus Christ. And in community, that means that there is interaction, that we're not satisfied until we're growing in grace It doesn't mean that we would, say, allow someone to come in and then they just continue to sin against everybody in community and yet we don't do anything because, well, they're poor in terms of their behavior. But we're talking about outward things, of course. We're talking about things that would separate us from others because they're not attractive. And this is so unlike God, and that's his point here. It is so unlike God's character. God, even in his choosing of Israel, uh, chose not a rich class of people, but a poor class. He says in Deuteronomy 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the poorest, fewest of all people. (laughs) You all were nobodies. You weren't a group of people that everybody say, oh, wow, I'd love to have them as my people, you know. I'd love to have that group as kings and queens. No, you you were nobodies. But I chose you. And I love what it says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 23. Who's like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name? I love that. He made himself a name by picking a people of no reputation, a poor people. That's how he made himself a name. That's how he glorifies his name and makes himself known that he is this God who shows mercy on the helpless. It says in Deuteronomy 10.17 that he is a, a God who is not partial, right? And in that context, it speaks of how he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner and gives him food and clothing. And he says, you love the sojourner because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, which shows that this whole section at the end of chapter 1 when he talks about widows and orphans and in this section about discrimination is taken from Old Testament passages. There is no injustice with God, no partiality And his love is upon the poor repeatedly. In Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord Jesus said this was fulfilled in him. It was upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. Hannah, he, in 1 Samuel 2, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Is that not exactly what he says here in James 2? That he chose the poor to be heirs of the kingdom? Same thing Hannah was saying. This is the way God works. And that's why in Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker 
But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 17, 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. It's an insult to the one who made that person. It's an insult to the one who is gracious to those kinds of people. And so Jesus himself said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke 6. And so there is this special heart that God has for the helpless and the poor. And if we don't share that heart, we're standing in the face of God. And we're rejecting God himself. We're rejecting his own values. And this is all the more apparent in what he says at the first of this chapter about the Lord Jesus. Because he says... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I would take the translation better of NIV or New American Standard, which says, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In the original, it says, our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. And so some take it as of the glory of God, that he is our glory as Yahweh was our glory. Now Jesus Christ is our glory. At the very least, he is saying, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think of Moses asking God to show him his glory, and the Lord revealed himself in Exodus 34, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's my glory. Here's my glory. Great and steadfast love and faithfulness. And now Christ is that glory made known, as John says in John chapter 1. He is the revelation of the glory and goodness of God. He shows forth the extent to which God will go to save a people. And so Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. There's his glory. As Paul says in Philippians 2, although he was in the form of God, and some would translate that because he was in the form of God, he poured himself out. Because he really was God, he really acted like God, which was to truly humiliate and humble himself to save us to become this servant even to the point of the cross. We see, to hold your faith in that glorious Jesus Christ with discrimination, this Christ who spilled His blood for all people, this Christ who spilled His blood for the humble and the broken and the poor, this glorious one, don't hold your faith in that glorious one in discrimination. Faith, of course, means to hold faithful to Him. To trust Him also means to entrust yourself to Him. To entrust your life and your ways, your person, your whole self. It means to trust His goodness and His wisdom. It means to honor Him as well. You honor what you trust. And so, out of trust and honor and respect to this Lord Jesus who sacrificed Himself, of course, we would not show partiality. 
And it's a necessary reflection, of course, that our glorious non-favorite playing Lord Jesus Christ, we would not show favoritism ourselves because of we follow His glory. This one who not only glorious, humbly identified with the poor, but also He is the glorious one before whom we will be judged. So there's two aspects of that glory. The faith in the glorious one who humbled himself and the glorious one who will be our judge. You see, it's the humble one who will be our judge. It's the one who spent himself for the poor that will be our judge. So the great part of his glory is that he would sacrifice himself, that he would be a, become a servant for us, that he would lay himself down for the worst of us. And that's our comfort. That, that's, what, that's what wins us to him, right? Because he would die for me. He would even die for me. He would sacrifice himself in spite of all that I've done and said and thought. He would sacrifice himself for me. And, of course, that brings us all to a common seat uh, in, in before the cross. Every seat is the same beneath the cross. There's this mutual helpless dependence, this mutual poverty that we have before Him, this mutual brokenness where we all realize, apart from Him, I am nothing, and apart from Him, I deserve His judgment. And... In the same way, these are equal seats of honor because all of us helpless people are made kings and queens in Him. So we're all the same. All before Him are helpless. All before Him are made kings and queens. And so, as you see in the first place, it violates the person of God because of what He's like, what He does, how He acts how he has particularly acted in Christ Jesus. But then, secondly, and more briefly, if you want to hear that part, but, uh, <laughs> it violates his person as he's expressed, as he's commanded us in his royal law. Notice in verse 8, this is where he talks about this if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now, what does he mean royal here? And what does he really mean by law? Um, royal is usually refers to that which belongs to a king. So it's kingly in that regard, that, that which refers to a king or belongs to a king. And in the context, it's best to relate it back to verse 5 where he says... He's chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Kingdom indicating and James' understanding that Jesus Christ, the Lord, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, is the king of this kingdom. And so this law is the, the law of that king, that kingly law. The law as given through Christ. And as David's puts it, it's a reference to the whole law as interpreted and handed over to the church in the teaching of Jesus. 
So it's the law as Jesus gave that law, as Jesus taught that law. And as a centerpiece to that law, as Jesus gave it, there is this verse that we have in that's quoted exactly from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's important to remember that in the uh, Jewish uh, way of life, in Jewish households, uh, Jewish leaders, everyone Jewish, uh, the, the requirement was to quote what's called the Shema. This is uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, hear, O Israel. Shema is the word hear. Okay. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then in the next verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Now you are to quote that in the morning and the evening, the morning and the evening, and the morning and the evening. It's the great confession of Judaism, the great confession of the Old Testament. The Lord our God is one. You will love him with everything you got. Go to bed. The Lord your God is one. You'll love him with everything you've got. Wake up the next morning. The Lord your God is one. You'll love him with everything you've got. Glorious. Marvelous. Stood against all the uh, polygamy. Uh, not polygamy. <laughs> polytheism. Or polygamy. Uh, that surrounded them. All the many gods that, that were worshipped. God is one and you'll love him with all of your being. So, Jesus is asked... In Mark chapter 12, which is the great commandment? And Jesus quotes Shema there in Mark 12. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Jesus said, he quoted this, and this is never, so McKnight tells us, this was never quoted in Jewish, Jewish literature. This verse was never quoted in Jewish literature. So Jesus says, and there's a second one like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whoa, wait, you're putting that one with the Shema? You're you're joining those together? And then Jesus says, on those two commandments, the whole law rests. On those two commandments, the whole law rests. That was earth-shattering, okay? That was... What, you know, what, Luke, Leviticus 19, where is that? You know, I mean, of course they knew, but it wasn't in the forefront of anybody's mind. And Jesus shows that in order to love God or by loving God, you necessarily must love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, this was taken up in uh, the New Testament where Paul can say in Galatians 5 uh, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, Paul says. Or he says this same basic thing in Romans 13. Uh, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he quotes several commandments and he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So this love, this commandment to love one another, James is saying, this is transgressed when you show discrimination to one another. You're flying in the face of God's royal law. The law, is, we, now we see it restructured in a sense. It's, in one sense, you could look at uh, Jesus has, has added a new centerpiece, you know, a new uh, 
part to the centerpiece. But really, he's restoring the original part to the centerpiece. Because that was always the centerpiece, part of the centerpiece. And this is a controlling and central principle of God's commands in Scripture. And it's a framework, this loving your neighbor as yourself, it's a framework for understanding every other commandment. That it all has to do with loving others as you love yourself. And so he, he goes on as he talks about this love. He says, if you keep the whole law but fail in one point, you're accountable for all of it. So the whole point of this law is a relationship to this God, not counting up how many laws I've gotten. I've gotten these. I had not gotten these, but I've done pretty well. But it's an attitude to God that makes every law important, everything he says important. Because they all come from the one source. He says, the one who said, do not commit adultery, said, do not murder. It's the same God. Sometimes we wonder, what was so bad about eating a piece of fruit in Genesis 3? Come on. You ever thought that? Like, eat one piece of fruit and the whole world goes, you know, what? Well, it's what that represented. This represented whole relationship that man had to God. It represented his whole submission, his love to and trust in God. And that was all thrown down in that one act. It represented everything. In that sense, what James is saying is if you, with no repentance and no concern, disobey any part of God's law, it's like you're throwing the whole law down. You're throwing God down. You're disregarding God totally. If you take a part of his word and treat it that way, without repentance, without concern. Now, of course, we all disobey in so many ways every day, word, thought, and deed. So we're not talking about, uh, yes, we all disobey, but we're talking specifically about repeated disobedience that's unrepented of and uncaring that would lead finally to judgment. And that is a reflection of our whole attitude toward God. It, It reflects an attitude of God's law. Relationship to God is the emphasis here. And so as, as Motir talks about it, it's as though a whole sh- glass is shattered. Doriani talks about how every commandment is broken in discrimination. Number one is covetousness. The tenth commandment, because you covet the rich person's thing. The ninth commandment, lying, that you're lying about what is right and wrong and lying about their person. Stealing. He goes through the whole list and shows how every part of the command is broken by this. But we, we love, to, uh, we love to consult with God about His law. You know, we, we, like, to, we like to come to God with His law and, and pick the good parts, pick the parts we like, so to speak. We, we will come to God in His law and say, Lord, I, I need your advice on this. Uh, I, I really need to get your take. I need to see what you say on this. But, but you know, just want you to understand that it's got to got to jail with the way I feel. It's got to jail with my wants and, and my priorities and all this. But, but I, I do at least want to find out what, what you have to say on it. You know? and that can be our attitude toward various parts of the law. 
We're not really submitted to it to say, Lord, speak. Lord, I treat it as a law of liberty. I treat it as that which sets me free to love you and sets me free to love others. But Lord, I am going to choose. I'm going to enthrone myself by doing that. Put myself in the, as the judge of your word. And he probably is referring to murder here as murder of the poor person. Maybe you all are thinking, hey, we never committed adultery. We're so pure. We don't lust. We don't do this. He says, but you're committing murder. You're committing murder. So the whole law is being destroyed in this. And then he says then, then to speak and act as those to be judged under this law of liberty. To speak and act as those judged by this law of liberty. A law of liberty, a law that sets us free, a law that enables us to follow him. And he's spoken earlier about the implanted word, which indicates that he thinks of the new covenant where God puts his word in our heart. God gives us his spirit to enable us to walk in new lives. And Therefore, this royal law becomes our new kingdom living. We're the heirs of the kingdom. We're commanded by a glorious king, and and he set a glorious example before us. And to be judged by the law of liberty would mean, have you personally experienced Christ's liberty? Have you been broken and experienced His mercy and His healing and His forgiveness? You see, that's the sense in which we'll be judged by the law of liberty. The law that in the end measures, did you helplessly depend upon my mercy? Did it show in your life that you helplessly depended upon my mercy? Because mercy began to come out of you toward others. Tasting that mercy, you were transformed by that mercy. And I think this is what he's getting at when he says in verse 13, judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Even Jesus said, forgive. If you forgive one another your sins, you'll be forgiven. That doesn't mean that you earn forgiveness, but it, it shows you're a forgiven person. You're experiencing that forgiveness. And so you offer that forgiveness to others. And I think when he says mercy triumphs over judgment, he means the mercy that we show triumphs over judgment because it shows that we've tasted and experienced God's mercy. We have submitted to his mercy. We've been broken by his mercy. His mercy has invaded us and taken over us and controlled and governed us. And so our lives are marked by that mercy, and therefore they will not be marked by discrimination. John says a similar thing in 1 John, and he says that when we love one another, the love of God is perfected in us. And then he goes on to say, this perfected love, experienced by God's love, gives us no fear and judgment. Sometimes you read that and you think, well, because my love is not perfect, that gives me fear and judgment. But he's saying, 
We love because He first loved us, and we've come to know and, and be convinced of the love that Jesus has for us, that God has for us. And He says when that love is tasted and experienced and we grow in it, then we become more and more those who love. And when that is going on in our lives, we can have confidence in judgment. Thankfully, this is what God aims to do for every one of His people, to bring you to that point that you are a person who shows abundant mercy. And God will do it. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you call us into the freedom of this law whose centerpiece is to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we want to be those people whose care and concern for others is not governed by anything except that they are in need, that we are not selecting on any other basis than that this person needs me, that person needs me, and not because of who they are or what they have. Lord, we want to be like you in this because this is what kind of God you are. This is the kind of actions you've taken in your salvation. You're not a respecter of persons. Lord Jesus, you've laid down your life for the worst of sinners, for the poorest of sinners, and you've made them kings and queens in your kingdom. Oh Lord, give us grace. Set us free. Strike down, Lord, the reigning of self that continues to persist in areas of our lives. And bring us to be like our Lord Jesus. And may it begin, Lord, afresh with our own brokenness before you, admitting our sin to you, and experiencing your forgiveness. Your forgiveness even for our lack of mercy. Your forgiveness for our discrimination. Oh, Lord, thank you that you save us continually, always. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away